Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've told you before about a, a pretty neat tradition that we have at our house at birthday time. Um, the older you get, the more you like this tradition. It, it is that when you don't know what to buy someone for their birthday, you just enclose in their card a check payable for the amount that represents the number of years being celebrated for your birthday. So um, 59 is a wonderful number. And uh, uh, this past uh, September, I was able to get a couple of checks for $59 each. That's pretty nice, you know, uh, outside the budget. And uh, inevitably, when this happens, Janet and I will have the same conversation. Because I will say something like this. I will say, I'll be reviewing my cards and holding my checks and thinking with delight about getting over to Home Depot to figure out what I need. And I'll say it out loud. I'll say, good, I have some money. Now I can go see what I need at Home Depot. And she doesn't get that. She thinks that if I needed it, I would know about it ahead of time. And I wouldn't have to go look for it. But no, uh, part of the joy is wandering around trying to figure out exactly what I need. You do know, don't you, that it's possible to need something that you really don't know about right now. Uh, (laughs) Not until you get to Hebrews 6, really. And so Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews shares with us something that every believer needs. And you might not have thought about it, and it might not be on your need list, but you need it, and it's an anchor for your soul. We need an anchor for our souls. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and even as you turn there, I want to further illustrate what I mean by this. I was reflecting upon... uh, about a 24-hour period earlier in this week, a fairly normal week of ministry for me, I was thinking about an individual who came in unexpectedly to my office without an appointment, and they sat down, and I could tell that they were greatly burdened, and they were somewhat reeling with the fact that they had left work early because they had received a call at work from the doctor's office, test results were in, and it was absolutely unexpected, and it was life-impacting, the results. We need an anchor for our soul. The phone rang, and it was a young man, and I knew a significant amount about what was going on in this home. Professing believers, all of these illustrations are, And the young man said on the phone to me, I'm done. I'm done. I've had it. I'm getting my stuff and I'm leaving. We need an anchor for our souls. The questions, the doubts, the burdens. I no sooner hung up with that call and I got another call from an individual who uh, was doing some investigating on, a, on an individual who was uh, accused of something absolutely inappropriately and unjustly, and they were investigating what had gone down, and it was absolutely false, every word of it. And of course, it was shocking and difficult. We need an anchor for our soul. 
Lord, have you heard my prayer today? Lord, how long shall we wait to see your promises fulfilled in our home? I need an anchor for my soul. About that time, the phone rang, and it was somebody who had some kind of an agenda uh, wanting to convince me that what our church believed was absolutely false, and they began to, to, to rail me over the phone. I finally hung up. We bounce around with adversity and with difficulty, and the circumstances of life are very difficult. About that time, my phone chirped. And uh, it was an individual who was asking for prayer because later in the week they were going to face a battery of tests that they were dreading. And they weren't sure they could even physically hold up underneath the testing. And it was a burden on them. We need an anchor for our souls. You might not have thought this morning that I need an anchor, but we need an anchor. It's interesting to me that in the catacombs, of the first century, not along with other symbols of Christianity, the most familiar to us is the fish sign that is scratched into the walls of the catacomb that at least 60-some times in, in the particular catacombs they have found pictures of an anchor. That's an actual picture of a first century uh, scratching in the wall of the catacomb under the ground where they scratched an anchor into the wall. It became a symbol of Christianity. In times of adversity, when the world seemed to be imploding and the sky is falling and we're fleeing for our lives, we need an anchor for our souls. Why? So that we don't give up. And that's the theme of Hebrews chapter 6. And as he concludes the chapter, he has finished warning them, and he does not want them to give up. Really, it's the theme of, of all of Hebrews, this letter written by this unknown author to this unknown little people group of Hebrew believers, perhaps a, a house church or a, a, a group of house churches together, probably not a large group of people, receiving this letter of challenge that you not give up. They have begun to face difficulty. They have begun to question their faith. They have begun to be influenced by other things that they were taught when they were raised and growing up under another system. And they began to doubt whether Jesus Christ was really who he says he is. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wondered, I wonder, is Jesus really real? Are these promises really true? You need an anchor for your soul. And the author today knows that what's needed for these believers is they need to sink their anchor into Christ. To get to the end of our chapter here and through chapter 6 where we are, uh, next week, Lord willing, we will cross into chapter 7. We'll have our young people here to quote the chapter for us as has been our practice as we've worked our way through this incredible book of Hebrews. Um, We're going to pick it up with verse 9 as he concludes what is the third warning section, and we're going to make a run to the end of the chapter here. You know that our author has been exhorting them, and if you have your notes nearby, the, the thing that he's been exhorting them in this book is to not give up on Christ. This is an undeniable faith that we have in Christ. Do not give it up. 
You see, they've been influenced by lots of different uh, thinking, uh, their understanding of the Old Testament under Judaism. Uh, angels might be greater than Christ. Moses might be greater than Christ. The prophets. Uh, is Christ really who he says he is and who we thought he was as their world presses in, as persecution begins, as family members out of Judaism turn against them? Maybe Jesus just isn't worth it. And he knows they need to throw out an anchor for their soul. Well, he's been wanting to explain to them why Jesus Christ is such a worthy high priest. And he begins to explain to them, these Jewish people who have a deep understanding of how the temple worked based upon the model of the tabernacle and how the high priest functioned as a representative to God, to the people, and how Jesus now has become our high priest. But they have questions because Jesus really isn't qualified, is he, to be the high priest? He's not of the line of Aaron and Levi. How come? How could he be the high priest? And, and so in chapter 5, he begins to talk about this, the writer does. And he begins to explain to them that Jesus Christ is a great high priest. And in fact, he wants now to launch into some significant teaching about this. And it's like he realizes they're just not ready for it. And that's chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, About this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Um, you're... You're not paying attention. And and then he goes on to exhort them because they are on milk and they ought to be on meat. They ought to be teachers. But instead, they're reviewing the alphabet. And that begins this third warning section that was so significant that we've been dealing with for a number of weeks that they should not fall away, that they need to let God's good rain of blessing fall down on the soil of their lives and bear good fruit in Christ, not to grow useless thorns and thistles that will amount to nothing if they Do not follow on after Christ faithfully. So we pick it up at the end of this warning passage of exhortation where he's wanting now to turn and he begins letter A in our outline of their undeniable faith. He wants to encourage them. You have this faith. Do not deny it. Let me encourage you. And we're at verse nine. Let's pick up our text. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We believe that you're born again, that you're saved, that you're following Christ and the things that belong to this great salvation, you're going to live them out. He's encouraging them as a loving pastor now. Beloved, we feel sure of better things for you. For God, verse 10, is not unjust. Well, that's the understatement of the day. He's not unjust. Of course he's not. He's absolutely righteous and just. So as to overlook your work, he he cannot overlook your work. He knows everything about you and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Don't you worry. God has seen the outworking of your salvation that is actual evidence of your salvation in Christ. Don't doubt. And you're still doing those things. And so he gives, number one, a word of encouragement or letter A, a word of encouragement that they are to maintain this faith. And then he begins to list off a list of expectations. Letter B, your faith is undeniable. Let me encourage you and let me share with you what I expect from you now. This is what I expect, the writer says to the readers and to us today. So letter B, expectation, verse 11 of chapter 6. Let your eyes go there. And we desire each one of you to show the same 
earnestness. The first thing he says is, I want you to be diligent. Your NIV uses the word diligently there. The ESV that we're reading today translates it earnestness. If you look up the word diligent, we are to be diligent. We are to be earnest in our faith. Diligent means to have careful effort. So this is not a, a flimsy faith. This is not a careless faith. We are to be diligent. He said, my expectation for you is not to fall away, but to be diligent in your faith. To have a faith with earnestness, careful effort. It has the meaning of the word perseverance. I want you to persevere in your faith. Verse 11 again, and we desire that each one of you, of each one of, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or to live diligently in your Christian life with perseverance and to have full assurance of hope. Secondly, he wants them to have hope. I expect you to be diligent. I expect you to live out your hope, okay, to the end. What is the end? Well, we don't know. He didn't explain what he meant by the end. Is that the end of your life for as long as you live? Live with this hope? I'm sure that's true. Often in the New Testament epistles, the end represented the second coming of Christ. And they were living in anticipation of the end. We want to be faithful to the end, we might say. And that is we want to be faithful until we're with the Lord. And we live with this this hope. Look what he says there. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That's a diligence and a perseverance. And have the full assurance of hope. Until the end, let's go back to our birthday party with the $59 checks. Sooner or later, a cake gets brought out, right? And in the cake, and then if you're 59, they crack jokes about the store didn't have enough candles to put on there, whatever. But they get some candles on the cake, and they light the candles, and someone will say, what? Make a wish. Make a wish. And so you think to yourself, what do I need? And you make a wish. And you shut your eyes and you take a deep breath and you, you blow the candles out. Okay? And what you just did is kind of meaningless because blowing candles out all at one time does not make a red convertible Corvette show up in your driveway. It just doesn't work. It's not going to work. But when we say we make a wish, we're saying, well, I hope I get this red Corvette with a convertible top. I really hope I get this new deer rifle. I, I wish I could get this new deer rifle. Listen, in our New Testament, hope, the word hope is never used like that. It's never used as like a birthday candle wish that I hope I get something that probably won't happen. In fact, it's quite the opposite almost. It is a confident expectation. This idea of hope, my hope is in Christ. What does that mean? It means I have a confident expectation in the reality that he is who he is. My hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means it was real. Yes, it's by faith that I enter that, but it's a confident faith. It's a confident expectation. So don't be confused by that word hope. All right, let's go back to verse 11. Remember, he's, he's calling out to them to not walk away from this faith. It's an undeniable faith. Let me encourage you. Now I have an expectation. Be diligent. Have hope. And then he uses that word again. He says, so that, verse 12, you may not be sluggish. 
All right, now let's remind ourselves what we've been telling you back at at chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, since you have become dull of hearing, clear through to 612, where he uses the exact same word again, sluggish, so that you may not be sluggish, you have become dull of hearing and sluggish. Dull and sluggish are exactly the same word. He just translated them a little differently. It has the idea of not being productive. It has the ramifications of lazy. That's what I want you to write down there. Don't be lazy in your Christian life. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull of hearing. Get off the milk bottle. Get on to meat. And it's going to take some work. And I have this expectation for you. He's already encouraged him. I believe for you that the outcome of your faith is going to produce... And I expect you to be diligent. I expect you to have hope. I expect you not to be lazy. And then to the point of our passage that's going to segue and hinge out to the end of chapter 6. So that you may not be sluggish. By the way, that's why we, we believe 5.11 through 6.12 wraps up this whole warning passage because of the way he used the language there. He used that word a little bit differently on both ends. He bookended it. And so that's the end of the warning passage. And now he's going to continue with his expectation for them. And he's going to explain that. So that you may not be sluggish. Here it is. But I want you to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is what he wants from them. Don't fall away. Don't falter persevere, be diligent, have hope, don't be lazy, imitate those with enduring faith. Imitate those with an enduring faith and be patient. Patient means I'm going to trust God right now today and then tomorrow I'm going to say it again. I'm going to trust God right now today when tomorrow is today. It is the idea of a steadfast endurance. Steadfast is a good word, isn't it? Remain steadfast. It's a strong word. And an endurance. And that is to be characteristic of my faith in Christ and in God's promises. Not faltering, not wavering, but a steadfast, enduring confidence in God and in his word and in Christ. And so he wants them to imitate those with faith and he wants them to be patient. Those two qualities, that's kind of a key word there, a key phrase. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The writer does not want them to give up, but rather to go on to experience the full blessing of their salvation in Christ. He wants them to know that to inherit the promises of God, they must have faith and patience. Because why? Because it really doesn't always seem like God is winning, does it? And the darkness of the world presses in, and the difficulties in our families are overwhelming, and it doesn't always seem like the Bible works. And so I'm tempted to falter in my faith. And the writer says, do not do that. Imitate those, imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And then he gives an example. And this is where we don't think Jewishly enough. And it's going to be a little bit problematic for the next three chapters, actually. Uh, We were playing, Jim Shupi and I were playing racquetball the other day, the guy who just served communion. And we were talking about where we were going in Hebrews, and he's done quite a bit of study and writing in Hebrews. 
And he said, you know, I have a paper. And he did. He brought it to me this morning and handed it to me. He said, I have a paper that I wrote to help a class understand in chapter 7, 8, and 9 how to think more Jewishly. Because we have a hard time thinking how they thought. Because we're Gentiles, most of us, and not Jewish, and we weren't raised up in Judaism, and we don't know our Old Testament scriptures the way they did. And they would have triggered immediately what he was talking about. One of the great heroes of faith and patient endurance was Abraham, and that's where he goes immediately. So he goes from this undeniable faith to remind them of an unbelievable story. Now, when I say, hey man, I got this unbelievable story, you'll never believe it. What am I really saying to you? Am I going to tell you a, a fake story or a real story? Come on, help me out. It means something really amazing happened, but it's true most of the time, right? I say, this is unbelievable. And you go on to tell this story about this harrowing experience or whatever happened, and it's just unbelievable. Well, it's not that it's unbelievable. It's just that it's amazing. And we call it unbelievable, but I want you to believe what I'm talking about. That's what this is. This is an unbelievable story that's absolutely true, and we're supposed to believe it. But it's amazing. And this is where we're not Jewish enough to immediately recognize the quote that he pulls out of Genesis chapter 22. Okay, so let's continue in our passage. So he goes, you have an undeniable faith. I want you to imitate those who had faith and patience and fulfilled God's plan for their lives. Now the unbelievable story is recognized in chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, there he is, And as soon as you say Abraham to these Jewish believers, they would have known everything about him. Since he had no one greater, God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That doesn't mean he said curse words. It means that he made an oath and he made an oath on himself because there was no one greater upon whom to make an oath. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now in your Bible, it's... Where in my Bible, where it says, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, there's quotes around it. Do you have that? It's because it's a quote from Genesis chapter 22 that every one of these Hebrew believers would have immediately understood exactly what story he pulled that from and how it had ramifications as an example of faith and patience in Abraham's life. And thus Abraham, verse 15, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He goes then on to explain the oath. But let's just look at this unbelievable story for a minute. Turn in your Bibles to to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to go straight to Genesis chapter 22. And let me just tell you what's in the other chapters laying the groundwork for that. It begins actually, this unbelievable story begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham. So you could add that right there underneath unbelievable story. You could say the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And maybe you'll recall that, maybe not, but go back and read it. It's, it's very interesting to read. Remember, Abraham's just a nobody. He's just a guy in Haran with his dad, worshiping false gods, evidently. And then God reveals himself to him. And he says, Abraham, I'm sending you to a land and I'm going to make you a nation out of you. So God says it in Genesis chapter 12 with his call. He then, letter A, in chapter 13, out in a field with his nephew Lot, he promises once again to make a nation out of him. So you got to remember the problem was this. 
Why is this such a spectacular illustration? Because God promised to make a great nation out of the descendants of Abraham, and he had a little problem. He didn't have any children. Woo! That's a problem. How are you going to be many descendants, a great nation? And you got, I got no kids, man. This is a problem. All right? And so not only does he promise him a land, he promises him to become a great nation. He even shows him the dust on the ground in chapter 13. He shows him the dust on the ground and he says, all those little tiny bites, little tiny granules of dust on the ground, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Oh, but God, I don't have a child. But Abraham believed him. In chapter 15, he makes a covenant under the stars. Letter A is a promise in a field that he would become a great nation and have many children. Letter B is a covenant. God makes a covenant with him. I will do this through you. And Abraham is reminding God in chapter 15 that at this point, God, this plan isn't going to work very well. Abraham's reminding God that he doesn't have any kids and in fact that everything he owns is going to go to one of his servants, Eleazar. And God says, Eleazar isn't going to get anything of yours. The most disappointed man that ever lived when Sarah got pregnant was Eleazar. He's not going to get any of your stuff. You're going to have a son. And And Abraham reminds God, but I don't have a son. And he says, get up and get out of your tent and come outside. And it's dark. And he says, look up at the sky. And it's evidently out in the boondocks. And it's absolutely pitch dark. And it must be just a stellar starry night where the sky is just overwhelmed with stars. And he said, will you start counting the stars, Abraham, if you can? And of course, Abraham couldn't. And God says, that's you. That's your descendants that I'm going to bring out of you. I'm going to give you, make of you a nation that has more people than the stars in the sky. And then it all happened. And you remember? So we're going to review all this in detail when we get to, Gen- get to Hebrews chapter 11, where Abraham is held up in that faith hall of fame that's where this book is going. It's holding up before the church examples of faith. Do not give up. Have faith. Endure to the end. Don't doubt. And then he has list after list. He has a, a, example after example after example in an entire list in Hebrews chapter 11. It's our favorite chapter in Hebrews. All these models of faith. But right here, we're now in Genesis chapter 22. And this is just the unbelievable part of the story. Okay, so he's been promising him and promising him. God has making a covenant with Abraham, but I don't have a son. Finally, he gives him a son. And remember, he has Isaac. There's more to the story, but we'll pick that up another day. Isaac is growing up in his old age. The Bible says Abraham and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead when they conceived. It was a miraculous birth. And they finally have the son, the son of promise, through whom God is going to give him descendants that outnumber the sand on the sea, he says, and the stars of the sky. And in Genesis chapter 22, look what God says to Abraham. 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. Are you kidding me? 
You promised to make a great nation out of me, and we finally have the son in our old age when our bodies are as good as dead, and now you're telling me to take him to this mountain you're going to show me and put him on the altar and bring the killing knife down into his chest and let his blood flow over the altar, and I'm going to kill the son that is the son of promise. That makes no sense whatsoever. But God said, do it. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 6, when the writer of Hebrews says to the Hebrew believers, I want you to model those who had faith and patience and never gave up and saw the promises of God fulfilled. In fact, Abraham comes to mind and immediately everybody would have understood. And God made a covenant with Abraham and they understood all the covenants and promises that God made with Abraham. And in fact, I suspect that Genesis chapter 22 and the offering of Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah had to have been a popular, most popular story among boys and girls in Israel of old. And they would get on their papa's lap and they say, would you tell me again about the time that the ram had his horns hooked in the brush and Abraham was going to offer Isaac and God stopped him just in time. They love that story, don't you think? They were the children of Abraham. He was, he was just the father of their nation. And God tests him. And he does that. And Abraham, you remember, and we'll walk through all of this when we get to Hebrews 11. Abraham does it. He takes Isaac. Isaac's probably at least 15 years old. He might have been 20, up to 25 years old. Totally capable of outrunning his elderly father. And they go up on the mountain, Abraham says, to worship. And there's the altar. And Isaac surrenders to his father's will and he lets him bind him with ropes and he lays him on the altar and he's preparing to bring the killing knife down on the the son of promise. This makes no sense. Hebrews 11, I think verse 9 says that Abraham believed the promise of God to the degree that the only thing he concluded in his mind is that if he killed him, God would raise him from the dead. Isn't that something? That's faith. And so at the last minute, God stops him. The ram is hooked in the brush. Jehovah Jireh, that's where we get that name of God out of this passage. God will provide. And then at verse 15 of chapter 22, let your eyes go there. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, so the angel of the Lord is God himself speaking. And this is the quote in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6 now and let's wrap up. It's not difficult to understand what's happening here in Hebrews 6 now. All of that would have been an instantaneous thought and recognition in the mind of the Hebrew readers of the recipients of this letter. So let's go back to 6.13. Let's pick up the last sentence of 12. 
but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now the incredible, unbelievable story. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He did that. He swore, I make a covenant with myself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's a direct quote out of Genesis 22. And thus, Abraham, verse 15, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Let's finish Roman numeral two, the unbelievable story. What's happening here is the writer is calling the Hebrews to do what Abraham did. Keep on trusting and obeying. Keep trusting and obeying God no matter what. Isn't that what Abraham did? He's going to put the killing knife in the son of promise. Keep trusting. Keep obeying no matter what. I told you. Believe. Follow through. That's the lesson that the Hebrew believers were to lock on to. Don't give up on this Jesus. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He is our high priest ultimately. Don't doubt it because God can't lie. We have an unchangeable God. He now is going to go and build on what they already understood about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is for final confirmation. So the reason I'm going to make an oath is because I'm human and I'm vulnerable to lying and cheating and uh, shenanigans. So if I want to convince you of something, what do I do? The lesser will make an oath to the greater. So I will either lay my hand on a Bible or I'll swear, cross my heart, stick a thousand needles in my eye uh, on my grandmother's grave, I promise. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to muster up something higher, something loftier that gives credibility or credence to my words right now. You can believe me. I swear it on my grandmother's grave. I don't know what that really means. My, My grandmother wouldn't lie, I guess. So he makes an oath from the lesser to the greater. But what he's saying is that, that God, to show Abraham that he meant what he said, made an oath, but he couldn't make an appeal to any higher cause. He is the highest. He's God. And so he swore by himself. It's almost nonsensical to say this. Why would God have to make an oath? Because everything God says is true. And then, but he's, he's doing this for Abraham's sake, and the writer of Hebrews is illustrating this with the readers, that everything God's word says you can trust, don't deny it, don't doubt it, have faith and patience, and you will see that it's true. And so God makes an oath to himself. That's how confident you can be on this. There is no higher level to go. And so the first thing we have is a recognition in verse 17 that God's purpose is unchanging. We have an unchangeable God and his purpose is unchanging. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Talking about what he did with Abraham, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
So the first thing he says in verse 17 is that God's purpose is unchangeable. God guaranteed it with an oath to himself. It cannot change. God doesn't change and his oath can't change. Secondly, letter B, God's promises are unchanging for it is impossible for God to lie. We read that later in James. James will bring that up as well too. God who cannot lie. What's the point of that? What is the point of saying that? Of course God can't lie. He's 100% truth. So what's the point of saying that? The point of saying that is that if God can't lie, then everything he's ever said is 100% reliable. You see now how fragile we are? How prone to failing we are? If God promised to never leave us or forsake us, can he ever leave us or forsake us? If God promised to feed the birds of the air and he promises to feed me, can he not feed me? He can never not feed me. He will take care of me. He made a promise. He will fulfill his promise. His purposes prevail. He makes an oath to himself. It's the highest calling. There's no way to go higher. He's just saying it's, you can't do any better than that. And God cannot lie. So every word is true. His purposes are unchanging. His promises are unchanging. And the result should be then in us an unshakable hope in Christ. You need to have an unshakable hope in Christ. We should be greatly encouraged, the reader should, so that by two unchangeable things, and nobody really knows for sure what those two unchangeable things are. At first, even as I was studying, I thought, well, it's the oath and the promise. But that's kind of the same thing. So there's a little bit of speculation among Bible students, and that's why Hebrews is just difficult. It's not always easy to know exactly what he means, although we know that the readers understood. We believe the readers really understood exactly. To hold fast to the hope set before us, um, back up at 18, excuse me, so that by two unchangeable things, one of those two things could very well be the Abrahamic covenant in which it is impossible for God to lie. His word doesn't change. That's unchangeable. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he wants us to have an unshakable hope. Number letter A, be greatly encouraged. God does not lie. That's verse 18, the last part of verse 18. Hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold on to hope, verse 19, the end of verse 18 and the first part of 19. Roman numeral three, our unshakable hope, letter A, be greatly encouraged, God doesn't lie. Letter B, hold on to your hope, don't doubt God's promises, don't doubt them. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Letter letter C, set your anchor in Christ, an anchor of the soul, which is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Pay close attention to the language here. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's he talking about? This anchor that we have in Christ. What is this anchor that's going to stabilize our lives? That's going to hold us? Why is it that they scratched an anchor symbol in the walls of the catacombs when their lives 
were on the edge of ruination and they were ready to be fed to lions and their homes had already been burned down. We draw a picture of an anchor because I have a place where I have sunk my anchor and it won't move and it won't drag and let the winds blow and let adversity come. My anchor is set. What is this forerunner Christ? Did you see that? For we have a forerunner Christ who has gone before us and he set the anchor behind the veil, it says, which is the Holy of Holies. You see, this goes back to his whole argument that he's wanting them to be convinced not to give up on Christ because he's our ultimate high priest and he's absolutely reliable. And they don't think he's even qualified to be a priest because he's from the wrong tribe and people group. What's the forerunner? It's a, it's a word picture from the shipping and from the seas. By the way, the writer of Hebrews must have ridden on ships somewhere along the line and been around water. In chapter 2, verse 1, he challenges them in his first warning section. Therefore, we must pay cl- much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. There's some nautical illustration there. Water. Don't drift away. Well, what does an anchor do? An anchor that is set keeps you from drifting away. And he says, Christ was our forerunner. So here's the picture that they would have understood in this day. There's a sailing vessel and the storms are coming on the Mediterranean Sea. They got to get to shore. They got to get into a harbor, but they're drawing too much water. It's too big of a vessel. They can't get into the shallow water. So they take a, a boat and lower it over the side, a smaller boat with oars. And they bring it alongside and they lower the anchor down into the boat and strong sailors row the boat with the cables, the long ropes, long ropes, and they row the small boat as a forerunner out towards the shore to get to shallow water or to shore itself because the big ship can't get there. So they put the anchor in the forerunner in this smaller boat, take it to shore, take it near shore where the where there's more terra firma in the bottom of the sea even, not as thick of mud. And they take the anchor out of the boat and they set it. And the word picture is that our Lord Jesus has gone behind the veil and set the anchor of our soul there. And you can count on that. And that takes us back to chapter 4, verses 14, where he was before he got distracted in this big warning passage. Since then we have a great high priest, 414, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't waver. Don't give up. He's made an oath to himself and he cannot lie. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. High priest isn't way up there and we can't touch him. He's one of us. He identified with us. He took on flesh so that he could be exactly what we were but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in a time of need. So I have my ship out here in the storms and everything's chaotic and crazy, but the forerunner has taken the anchor and he's taken the anchor right behind the veil into the very presence of God where Christ is at the right hand of God and he's set the anchor down and it will hold my anchor holds. Let the storm blow. I have an anchor 
for my soul. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that trips in the writer immediately the fact that he's gone behind the veil and Christ is the forerunner and that he's our high priest. He knows now he immediately has to go back and convince them that he is qualified to be that high priest. And the next three chapters is going to be about Melchizedek and the priestly role of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be encouraged greatly by it. And so the writer goes from one thing to the next, tripping his ideas as he goes. You see that? This is what I want you to do. You're not going to fall away. I have higher hopes for you. I have seen your salvation at work in you. And so I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises of God. That brings Abraham to his mind. And he uses Abraham for the illustration. And he reminds him that Abraham believed God, even though he was going to kill the son of promise. But God made an oath with himself and he cannot lie. And Abraham believed it to be true by faith, even though he never did see possession of the land. He never did see a great nation. Ultimately, he saw it spiritually, ultimately. But it's true, Israel's a great nation. And the land, parts of it, are, the Abrahamic covenant are still unfulfilled to this day. So are you ready to imitate the faith of Abraham? You better be careful if you say yes right away. Think about it. If God asks you to do hard things, what do we do? Pout, cry, throw things against the wall, swear, kick the dog. See, this should affect everything about us. If the promises of our God are true, and they are, they are unyielding, they are absolutely set, and I have an anchor for the soul that is set behind the veil. I can count on my high priest. He's already gone as a forerunner, and he's established it for me, and all this is set. My salvation is secure. Why would I give up on this salvation is his point with them. If you're going to emulate the faith of Abraham, you've got to be ready to do crazy stuff like God says, go to that land. What land? I'll tell you when you get there. Faith doesn't really make a lot of sense to a watching world. As you said, have the faith of Abraham. Are you ready to imitate Abraham? Do you really believe the promises of God? And I think when you really believe the promises of God, it quiets your heart. It gives you the ability to love your wife that you can't stand or your husband that you can't stand. It gives you the ability to trust God for bills that you can't pay. He promised. He promised he's not going to drop us. Might not look exactly the way you think it should look, but his promises are true. And that's where the patience comes in to wait and see how your faith is going to come to fruition as the promises of God. And I, sh- I assure you, if not in this life, in the life to come, it will all be made clear. Often, I've already found and lived almost long enough now to be in the older category. I can turn back and look around and say, you know, 30 years ago, I didn't understand that. But I see now what God was doing. He's been faithful. Are you anchored in Christ? And are you unwavering in your salvation? He's been the forerunner took the anchor behind the veil and hooked it in hard. Let the winds blow. I'm anchored in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer, please. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would call on you today to put your faith and trust 
in this anchor of our soul, the Lord Jesus. You do that by faith. You just admit your sinfulness, call upon God to save you. Let Jesus Christ and his work at the cross count for you by faith. And Father, we need your help as we live and as we go forward. The winds of life blow and it is difficult. And we need an anchor that is set. And thank you for the reality that our salvation is anchored in Christ behind the veil in your presence. And it is a secure salvation. And we will not walk away from this salvation. And we will not walk away from this Christ. And we will have the patience to follow through and watch our faith be fulfilled as your word will be true. And it is true. And Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen us in our faith and in our walk with Christ this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.